Hey everybody, and welcome back. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Well, it's, it's good to be back with you again for another week, for another episode. Today, my guest is Cal Beisner, and Cal is the founder of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And by way of a few other points of contact and introductions... Cal is going to be with us here in Grimsby at the Ezra Institute, June 6th, 2020. We've got the Mission of God conference happening with Joe Boot, Cal Beisner. They're going to be speaking on the theme of where garden meets wilderness, helping us develop a biblical understanding and a biblical approach to creation care and the stewardship of creation. Visit EzraInstitute.ca to get your tickets to the conference. Cal has also got an article in the most recent issue of Jubilee that's coming out March 2020. You can visit EzraPress.ca to subscribe. In this episode, Cal talks about the relationship between biblical stewardship of the earth and care for the poor, about the historic coinciding between the growing concern over climate change and the co-opting of the environmentalist attitude by socialists, He also talks about how Christians are called to fulfill the two great commandments to love God and love our neighbors by working to enhance and develop the fruitfulness and beauty and cleanliness of the earth. He draws a strong connection between care for the earth and economic development, and we finish up by talking about what we can do as Christians to be better stewards of creation. I hope you enjoy. Yeah, welcome. Thanks for being here, and welcome to the program. This is the podcast for cultural reformation that uh, that the Ezra Institute produces, and I'm uh, grateful to have you with us. Great. In uh, in advance of having you with us this summer for the the Mission of God conference here, I just thought it would be a great idea to, uh, yeah, like I said, introduce our audience to to a little bit more about you. Well, I'll be glad to, uh, you know, to to try to tell you anything you'd like to know. No, I'm looking forward to it. The first thing that I'd like to know is I was introduced to you, uh, introduced to your name, uh, connected with the Cornwall Alliance uh, through mm-hmm. jo- through Joe Boot. But actually, uh-huh. my, my first exposure to your name in print uh, is, of all things, you wrote a preface to a book on covenant theology and the federal vision uh, yes. by Guy Prentice Waters. And then like, you've, yes. got, you've written books on baptism, on the Trinity, on assurance of salvation. So I guess my, uh, my question for, for you and all of this is, <laughs> how did you get going in the, uh, <laughs> the climate research and creation stewardship uh, field yeah that's a that's a real puzzler for a lot of people and frankly it, it's a bit of a puzzler for me yeah. i mean really i'm i'm a i'm a weird sort of a fellow uh my undergraduate degree is in interdisciplinary studies with double emphases in religion and philosophy and double minors in classical languages and classical history so one would never think that those would launch me on a career where probably i'm better known around the world for my work in in uh, uh, climate science, climate policy, energy policy, things like that, mm-hmm. than anything else. My my MA is in economic ethics, which is a little bit closer, <laughs> yep. in that there's a lot of economic analysis to be done in terms of climate and energy policy. 
But my PhD is in Scottish history, particularly the political thought of the late 17th century Scottish Covenanters. Right. And that seems about as far removed as anybody could imagine. But actually, I've probably, no, not probably, uh, undoubtedly, I have done far more uh, study on the scientific and economic and ethical aspects of of uh, climate change itself, of climate policy, of energy policy. Uh, on, on those, I've done far more research than I did for my PhD. And so, uh, yeah, of course, I have no, I have no formal credentials to show for it. Right. That's uh, always but, the way, isn't so, it? So how did I get here? <laughs> yeah. How did I get here? We're um, all dying to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> I could make it a really long story by telling everything from my very early childhood until my uh, late 40s, um, but I'll skip an awful lot. Right. But I'll still start in my very early childhood. Uh, when I was a toddler, my father accepted a position with the U.S. State Department, and he was uh, posted to Calcutta, India. So our family moved there. And... Uh, not too long after we got there, my mother was paralyzed. Uh, we don't know what caused the paralysis, uh, but she was paralyzed, and I was uh, too little to be unsupervised at home. Mm -hmm. So every morning, my Aya, or nurse, would take me by the hand uh, from our apartment down through the, uh, the courtyard of the apartment building, and along the way, uh, I would see something that formed a permanent picture memory in my mind, uh, a wonderful, big, beautiful green tree with a vine hanging out of it with big, huge red blossoms all over the place. And we would go down uh, early morning uh, after sunup, but not very long after, and I would see that with the colors of the, the early morning sky beyond it. And that just became uh, a long-term picture memory for me. But then we would walk out of the courtyard and uh, onto the streets, and we would walk a number of blocks to where I would spend the day with Indian family. And all along those streets, uh, every day, I stepped over the bodies of the people who had died of starvation and disease overnight. That also provided me with a large stock of picture memories from my early childhood. No kidding. Um, I didn't. Uh, I, I had no idea early on how God was going to use those uh, those memories in my life. Um, I wasn't a Christian at the time. My parents weren't Christians at the time. But in 1967, my father and I were both converted to Christ at a Billy Graham crusade in Anaheim, California. And about a year later, I started getting discipled by um, staff members of Campus Crusade for Christ at uh, the high school where I was a freshman, and they were teaching me how to witness, and uh, I began witnessing to lots of people, and I would encounter objections to the Christian faith, and I didn't happen to like losing arguments, <laughs> and besides that, I, I wanted to provide good reasons for my faith. And so I made a habit of going to a Christian bookstore and getting books that would help me to answer the various arguments. Um, 
So by the time I was a uh, late freshman year, I was reading systematic theologies and church histories and writings of the early church fathers and starting to try to study some Greek and, and biblical exegesis and things like that. And I did all of that sort of thing all through high school and all through college. And uh, in college, my senior thesis was on the early history of the doctrine of the Trinity, which has always been a fascinating subject for me. Um, so all of my, my interests were basically in personal evangelism and apologetics to serve that. Uh, but in 1981, uh, I was meeting, I had moved by this time to Northwest Arkansas, a small town there. I was m meeting for breakfast every Saturday morning with a pastor friend. We would pray together. We would uh, read books together and discuss them. And one day he showed up and, and handed me a book and said, Cal, you must read this book. It will change your life. And it was a book by Ron Sider, Ronald Sider, mm -hmm. founder of Evangelicals for Social Action, called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Well, frankly, I had zero interest in anything like that. Um, despite the fact that I had read the Bible many times, its emphasis on the care for the poor uh, had never broken through to me. So I had no interest in it, but uh, the pastor kept pressing and pressing me, and finally I broke down and read the book. Well, I didn't know anything about economics. I didn't know anything about helping the poor. But I did know logic from my philosophy studies. I did know biblical exegesis from all the reading and commentaries and the like. And I sensed that uh, Dr. Sider had not used those very well. Mm. And I thought, gee, if he's done a poor job with those, I wonder what he's done with economics. So I did my typical thing. I went to a bookstore and I bought a stack of books on economics and I started reading those and I decided, no, he really doesn't understand economics very well either. And if people were to uh, embrace his ideas here, very socialist leaning ideas at that time, and uh, uh, try to implement them, they could, with the very best of intentions, actually do a lot of harm. And so that set me off on doing more research and learning more economics, which is what led to my doing the uh, MA in economic ethics. Meanwhile, a theologian friend of mine who had started the Coalition on Revival, uh, an organization intending to flesh out biblical worldview and how it informs all the different aspects of human life, knew of my work in economics, and he asked me if I would chair the economics economics committee in the coalition on revival and ultimately i agreed to do that and over a period of several years uh, actually a couple of hundred different uh, christian economists and and theologians and the like all had a hand in producing uh, a white paper out of that and in that process uh Two scholars involved were Marvin Alasky, who is now editor-in-chief of World Magazine, yeah. and Herb Schlossberg, the author of a marvelous book called Idols for Destruction. And they had contracted with Crossway Books to edit a series of books on the Christian worldview called the Turning Point Christian Worldview Series. And they asked me to write the volume on economics. And I agreed to do that. One of the chapters was supposed to treat the economics of population, resources, and the environment. 
And I had not done much study on that before. And as I did study on it, I told them, no, this can't be done in a chapter. It's way too big a subject. We just have to kick that chapter out. And they said, well, instead, why don't you just do another second whole book just on that? So essentially, that's what got me into uh, uh, you know, looking at population, resources, environmental quality, environmental stewardship, all of that. And within a few years, I had earned something of a reputation for some scholarship in that. And so I was, I was frequently invited to take part in academic conferences and the like. And uh, along the way, I, it's like little by little, it dawned on me. Those picture memories from my early childhood really, uh, really had given me a heritage of compassion for the poor and appreciation for the beauty of God's creation and the desire to serve both of those things at once. And little by little also the, the understanding that if we want truly to help the poor, we need to want a clean, helpful, beautiful environment. But if we want a clean, helpful, beautiful environment, we also need to want to help the poor because a clean, helpful, beautiful environment is a costly good, and wealthier people can afford more costly goods than poorer people can. So that's why I wound up uh, in much of my work in several books and in you know now hundreds and hundreds of articles and in a lot of teaching, uh, combining uh, the two concerns for uh, biblical earth stewardship and economic development for the very poor, and tying those to the gospel of Christ, because ultimately, as long as people are not reconciled to God, they're not going to think God's thoughts after him, they're not going to understand his world the way he's intended it to be used, and so they won't exercise uh, what I would call a godly dominion uh, over the earth. Right, that uh, that's a, a superb sort of encapsulation of that. I really appreciate that explanation. Uh, you touched on something as you were just getting uh, mentioning compassion for the poor and the relationship to a clean environment. Uh, yes. The like, on the one hand, uh, who could be against that? But uh, but. I, I noticed that what uh, I was listening to a lecture that you gave uh, not too long ago, where you brought up the uh, the current uh, strain of cultural Marxism that's actually animating the uh, the leftist uh, environmental movement, and yes. these are the same kind of talking points that uh, that this uh, this side of the argument uh, is advocating. Uh, so I'm just, uh, just, I'm not sure what the question is, but uh, maybe, maybe the question is, what's, uh, what does cultural Marxism or what does uh, climate research have to do with cultural Marxism? Well, uh, climate research, uh, depending on how broadly or how narrowly you're defining that, may or may not have a lot to do with cultural Marxism. Uh, when it comes down to you know the the brass tacks of meteorology and climatology, uh, there needn't be any real connection. But in our age, um, and I'd say basically stretching back 40 years or so, maybe 50 years, 
Um, it's been increasingly common for scientists to become very politically active and to think that their scientific findings somehow have some obvious consequences for public policy. And that's a rather um, uh, ironic thing in that most scientists want to insist that science is a value-free endeavor uh, right. and that you cannot derive ought, you cannot derive obligation, moral obligation, from is, yeah. from what science can tell us about the world around us. Um, but that's, that's something that has been, uh, uh, I, I think, forgotten by a lot of scientists. And uh, ultimately, by the way, it never was a, a fully proper understanding of the relationship between science and public policy because science itself is not a value-free endeavor. Sure. Uh, science values truth over falsehood. It values knowledge over ignorance. Uh, and, and those are not, uh, those cannot be defended pragmatically. They can only be, de be defended on the basis of some, uh, some underlying transcendent principles. Uh, so consequently, uh, science is not properly value-free. But it has been uncommon until the last 40 or 50 years for many scientists to, to think that their scientific findings uh, necessarily uh, imply some public policy uh, preferences. So that's happened a lot for a lot of scientists, particularly in the uh, climate change field. And uh, it's understandable why it would. I mean, if indeed human emissions of, of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are going to cause global warming of a magnitude and rapidity that are truly devastating to human well-being, to the well-being of, of ecosystems around the world, uh, then we ought to be thinking about uh, whether we have an obligation to do something about that. Uh, whether that doing something about it is to mitigate it, to reduce the warming, or, or to adapt to it, or some combination of those two. So it's not terribly surprising. Uh, but historically, there was a, what, a, a simultaneity, a coinciding of the growing concern about climate change on the one hand among some scientists and the movement of many uh, what um, well frankly uh, socialists actual members of socialist parties in countries around the world mm -hmm. uh, to embrace environmentalism as the new face of socialism uh, from the 19 say, uh, from about 1900 to the early 1960s, it was a rather interesting question in terms of economics whether socialism or capitalism would produce more wealth and get it to more people. Right. And, uh, you know, during that time, well, we hadn't really had an awful lot of experimental uh, uh, work done on that yet, so it was hard to say which which economic system would win that contest. By the mid, early to mid-60s, it was pretty obvious that capitalism, that is 
private property rights, entrepreneurship, uh, free trade, limited government, the rule of law, uh, that capitalism was not only producing a whole lot more wealth, but it was also getting it in the hands of a whole lot more people um, and at the very same time that it was preserving freedom for people, whereas socialism was producing far less wealth, getting it into far fewer hands, and subjecting people to uh, very oppressive governments. Um, and so as a result, a lot of people who were ideologically committed to socialism, to Marxism, uh, began to realize we're not going to win the war that way. We need to hitch our wagon to uh, a different star. And what they saw was that environmentalism seemed to be that star. And so they began arguing, well, capitalism may produce more wealth and get it to more people, but it's destroying the planet while we're at it. Capitalists don't care if they use up all the Earth's resources and poison the air and the water and the soil while they're at it, mm -hmm. uh, because all they care about is the, the bottom line during their own lifetimes. Right. They don't think ahead to the future. And so that meant that a lot of socialists began to call themselves environmentalists, and uh, in fact, many of them founded green parties in various countries around the world. And so you had the conflation of those two movements, the climate change uh, warning or alarm movement yep. and the socialism moving into environmentalism movement. And so that's why you tend to find uh, a lot of agreement between the two. And it's why uh, a lot of the leaders of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, of the UN Environment Program, and so on, uh, are socialist as well as alarmist on various environmental issues. Right. No, that uh, that makes sense. That's a uh, that's a clear thread. Uh, having having said all that, um, what you're you're the head of you're the founder of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And right. It's, uh, that's a pretty deliberately chosen term that uh, calls up uh, a lot of biblical imagery on, regarding stewardship, regarding creation. Um, having said all that, what, uh, what would characterize a Christian approach to creation stewardship? Yeah. Well, we obviously want to build our understanding on the basis of a biblical worldview uh, yeah. where we recognize that uh, uh, a rational, uh, omniscient God designed, a, an omnipotent God created, and a faithful God sustains the world itself, uh, the whole creation, and that he made human beings in his image and instructed us, uh, blessed us, and instructed us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And so we want to find out what sort of dominion this is. Uh, Christianity has been accused, for instance, by Lynn White Jr., uh, actually a medieval historian, writing an article in Science magazine back in 1967 called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis, uh, he accused Judaism and Christianity of uh, causing the abuse of the earth 
because of Genesis 128, uh, the idea that man can have dominion over the earth, he figured, was used by Jews and Christians as an excuse to exploit and abuse the earth. Um, Now, of course, one can go through the whole history of rabbinic and Christian commentary on that verse and never never find any commentators uh, inferring that from it. Uh, so it's entirely a caricature, that's a bit but unfortunately it caught on. Pardon? That's a bit inconvenient for him. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, but his idea caught on. Right. His, his uh, article in Science Magazine has been reproduced in many, many anthologies that have been published through all the years since, and it's constantly referred to. And in fact, Francis Schaeffer uh, referred to it at length. In his uh, 1968 book, uh, um, Pollution and the Death of Man. Uh, So, uh, unfortunately, uh, the church took a lot of of, uh, blame for environmental difficulties. But, in fact, if we look at Genesis 1 to find out, okay, what should our dominion look like? Well, since we're made in God's image, our dominion should look like his dominion. Well, what's his look like? Well, he made everything out of nothing, so the better we get at making more and more out of less and less, the more we reflect his image in that. He brought light out of darkness. The more we generate knowledge, understanding, the more we reflect that. He brought order out of chaos. He brought life out of non-life. He brought great variety of life, and he instructed all the various different living, living things to multiply and fill their various niches in the world. Uh, So a godly dominion, a dominion that reflects his, is going to be one that seeks to to get the most we can out of resources rather than wasting them, rather than using them uh, sloppily. Uh, It's going to seek to bring greater order out of lesser order, uh, more life out of less life, and so on. Uh, All of those things. So in the Cornwall Alliance, we, we sort of summarize godly dominion as men and women creating God's image, laboring lovingly together to enhance the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors so that we're really addressing the two great commandments to love God and to love neighbor. And, you know, when, when we put it that way, I don't find many people who object to that idea you know, who doesn't want to make the earth more fruitful, more beautiful, right. more safe. Uh, and, and that's what we ought to be going about. But I mentioned earlier that, uh, that this ties to issues of poverty because a clean, helpful, beautiful environment is a costly good. Uh, that's a pretty simple thing to understand if you just ask yourself, if I want to see the dirtier part of Los Angeles, do I go to the wealthy neighborhoods or to the poor neighborhoods? If I want to see a dirtier country, do I go to the wealthy countries or to the poor countries? And the answer is pretty obvious, and it's not because poor people don't care about filth. It's because poor people can't afford to do much about filth. Right. And so if we really want to have a clean, helpful, beautiful, uh, fruitful, safe environment, then we want to see as many people as possible rise and stay out of poverty 
So that's why the Cornwall Alliance's second great concern is economic development for the very poor. And both from our biblical studies and from our studies of the history of economies, we're convinced that two things are indispensable for that. The first is a set of social institutions, private property rights, entrepreneurship, free trade, limited government, the rule of law. And the second is access to abundant, affordable, reliable energy, uh, because everything that we do requires energy. And the more energy we can apply, the more we can produce in the way of food, clothing, shelter, transportation, communications, healthcare, education, everything. Right. Uh, so no society has ever risen out of poverty without those things, and no society can stay out of poverty without those things. So we seek to educate the public and, and policymakers on both of those different fields, and at the same time, to put across the gospel because uh, people who are alienated from God need to be reconciled to him in order to understand his world and use it properly. That's a fantastic tying together. It is demonstrating how these different uh, spheres and the policies and institutions are so interconnected. I really appreciate that. Um, Thank you. Dr. Beisner, I really appreciate your time. I don't want to take up uh, much more of it, but uh, while I've got you um, and for everyone listening, I know that I'm wondering uh, two things. Uh, the first is, what, what can I do uh, to be a better steward of creation in my own ordinary Western middle class kind of life? And the other is... What can I read to understand this whole area better? Mm -hmm. uh, great questions. You know, uh, on the first question, really, what, what can I do to be a better steward? An awful lot of it is pretty much common sense. Um, you know, we, we don't want to be wasteful of anything. And uh, one of the things that we can do is to look for ways to, <laughs> well, Actually, to borrow a phrase from my parents, who grew up during the Great Depression of the 1930s, uh, nobody was thinking in terms of environmental stewardship back then, or hardly anybody was. Mm -hmm. But it was a very widespread phrase used throughout uh, uh, the United States, Canada, Western Europe, countries affected by the Great Depression. People would say, look, use it up, wear it out make it do or do without. <laughs> and, you know, that's, uh, okay, we don't waste. We don't waste things. Uh, we keep, uh, keep recycling. We keep reusing things until there's no way to continue reusing them. And then even then we look for some way to dispose of them that is itself useful. Uh, so certainly uh, we look for effective, uh, efficient ways of recycling many things, uh, and for a lot of things, there are some good ways. Uh, you know, this is an area where I, I love to challenge young Christians. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you study engineering, study uh, materials engineering, and help to find ways to make recycling various things that we now put into uh, landfills uh, economically rewarding, and environmentally protective. 
we need a lot more of that kind of engineering. There are some things that make perfectly good sense to recycle right now. Aluminum, uh, a number of other metals, in some places uh, glass, uh, at some times in some places paper, but at other times in other places not. Um, uh, plastics in some ways. We should be looking for more ways to recycle pretty much everything that we use so that, uh, so that we're not just, you know, dumping things. Um, but basically, if we ask ourselves, how can I be a good steward of what belongs to me? Well, if everybody were a good steward of what belonged to him or her, there'd be good stewards going, stewardship going on all over the place. So, for instance, you know, I, I don't want to waste money, mm-hmm. so I turn lights off when I'm not using them, right? Well, that means that we use less energy, which means that we, I mean, we're, we're not wasting energy, which means that we don't have to generate as much energy, which means that we don't have to burn as much coal or natural gas or oil, which means we don't put as much sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, which, is, uh, which, which means that we, we have less harmful impact on, on people's rep- respiratory systems. So those are some ways to go about that, and there are a lot of different things that people can read on this. Uh, for one thing, I would just invite your listeners to come to cornwallalliance.org online. That's www.cornwallalliance.org. We have hundreds and hundreds of articles uh, we have a, a number of major papers there uh, that can educate people about these things. Uh, we also have videos on YouTube under the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation channel. And uh, we have a Facebook page where we uh, frequently post new information. So all those are places people can go. Um, you know, there are a number of uh, very helpful books that folks can read. Uh, some of those, quite a few, are, are on in our online store at cornwallalliance.org. That's that's a huge help. That sounds like some fantastic and uh, fantastic resources that'll serve for for a good while. Dr. Beisner, thanks again for being with us on the program today. We are looking forward to having you here uh, on site in June for the Mission of God conference, and I wish you every blessing. Ryan, thank you very much. I've enjoyed doing this with you, and I look forward to seeing you on June 6th for that Mission of God conference. I hope that uh, many people will come, not just uh, from around Canada, but from the USA as well. We're looking forward to it. God bless you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. If you did, it would mean a lot to us if you took a moment to subscribe, like, and share the podcast on social media and on your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.